Welcome to the Financial Advisors Edge Podcast, a show created by financial advisors for financial advisors. Are you ready for some straight talk about building and growing a financial services practice? Four advisors in different states at different firms that have each built $100 million plus practices from scratch the right way through hard work, doing the right thing, and having fun while doing it. It's time for you to get the edge. Here are your hosts, Brad Warhurt, Jeff Copeland, Jim Martin, and Greg Gonzalez. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Financial Advisors Edge podcast. My name is Jim Martin. I am joined by two heavyweights in the industry, Greg and Brad. And today we are talking about minimum account sizes. Look, this is a big question that gets floated around the industry. Hey, you should only work with people with a million dollars, 500,000. You need to get 100 clients with a million dollars and you're going to have a $100 million book. You can take 26 weeks off a year and, and live the high life. And then there's the other philosophy like, hey, if you fog a mirror, I will work with you. And people are very different about their approaches to this. And I and the rest of the group thought, what a great idea to get these two guys who run very different practices, both very successful together, and talk about account size minimums. Does it make sense? How should you do it? Why is one system better than the other? So, guys, here's my expectations today. I want a clean fight. I don't want any hits below the belt. Uh, and uh, I think we should just jump right in. You guys ready? Yeah. Ready. All right. I mean, I didn't take notes or anything. But yeah. So, <laughs> well, yeah, Greg, Greg is really prepared for this and Brad's just going to shoot from the hip. So, uh, you know, at the end, I'm going to, I'm going to declare a winner. I'm going to hold somebody's hand in the air. I hope it's not a split decision here, boys. So let's just start with the, uh, let's start with the obvious. Like, you know, I get it. Uh, you know, you've got to make a decision at some point in your career about, are you going to have an asset management minimum? Are you going to work with somebody that wants to put $50 on a Roth IRA, or are you going to work with somebody that has $500,000? And by the way, let's, let's put a caveat on this right now, right from the start. If you're new into the business, and what I mean in new into the business is probably year one through two or one through three, look, your most important thing you can do is stay in business. Okay. That means that you're probably going to throw this out the window, but look, after you've got some assets underneath your belt or uh, subscribers, whatever, however your model is, you're going to have to make some decisions. So let's, uh, let's go right over to Brad and Brad, let's talk about your practice right now. Do you have an asset management uh, minimum in your practice? I do not. Um, and I also don't charge a minimum advisory fee. So I, I do end up with a fair number of clients that I, I truly don't make any money on, at, at least at this stage of the game. Um, but what I kind of did was, I, I do have a requirement, though. I I must enjoy working with you, and you must be willing to receive help, right? I, I, I'm not going to, and that, I mean, that applies for any asset level. But, um, you know, as long as someone is is looking for advice and willing to take it, and that they're respectful and pleasant to deal with, that that's my minimum. Right. It's not a dollar figure. And I think, you know, I did a, a decent job when I when I was starting out and figured out that the job number one was to still be in business, you know, three years out and five years out. Um, I, I really embraced that. And I, I think I just evolved over time to work out a good system that enabled me to continue working with smaller clients without it without bogging down my practice. Awesome. Greg, 
How about you? I, I think I know the answer to this, and I think the the viewer, the listeners know as well. But you've got a you've got a minimum, right? I I do. I have an informal minimum. Okay. So, uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, like let's say, you know, for example, somebody is retiring in a year, and there's going to be a big rollover. Right. They they may not have the assets today, but if they're retiring in a year, of course, I'm going to take that into consideration. So so also, you know, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I do. I, I don't state it directly on my website, um, but kind of I've got in my mind kind of the the type of, of person that I want to work with. So so who is that? What, what, walk us through what that what that looks like. If I wanted to be a, uh, a client of yours. Uh, what do I need to have? Who do I need to be? Yeah, yeah. I, typically, it's it's somebody fifty five and older that's serious about retirement planning. So, and and I joke with people, however you want to explain it, um, but but I say, you know, if, if you're interested in Bitcoin and you know stock options and you know all this kind of stuff, I, I that that's not me. You know, I can help you find a better fit. So we help people fifty five and older that are, you know, very serious and maybe on the doorstep of retirement, they may be, maybe they're nervous about retirement. Do I have enough saved? That kind of thing. And they know they need help. Um, we work with a lot of women too. Uh, I know I've mentioned that on another pod on yeah, a couple different episodes, I believe, but uh, many single divorced women our clients of ours, they're easier to work with. I enjoy working with them more. Uh, I echo what what Brad said is I do have uh, criteria that that no matter how much money you have, that you've got to kind of check the boxes for you to become a client. And the n- number one thing is, do I like you? If I don't like you, and I have had many introduction meetings, we call it, you know, just come in, meet face to face, or maybe over the phone. If I don't like you, I, I just flat out tell people, hey, you know, I, I just don't think I'm going to be the best fit for you. Um, but I've got a I've got a couple different advisors who I would recommend that that I suggest you interview. So let's let's imagine you like them, but they don't have enough money. And what's what's not enough? Are you going to work with somebody five hundred? Is your is your soft minimum a half a million dollars, a million dollars? Where do you where do you kind of draw the line? It's about it's about five hundred thousand at this point. Okay, so yep. somebody comes into your office with two hundred fifty thousand dollars. You like them, but there's probably not going to be a lot a, a bigger relationship down the road. What 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 are you gonna what are you gonna do to, with that individual? Yeah, I I know uh, an, an advisor locally who I say, um, you know, is probably going to be um, a, a good fit for them based on their needs and, and their circumstances. Um, yeah, I, I never say you don't have enough money to work with me. Right. Um, I, and I say, you know, just, just the cost that we have, um, um, are just, it just doesn't justify, uh, your needs don't justify, you know, our full services because right. you there do are your best work with people over 50 with half a million dollars or more. Correct. Yeah. So, so I, I don't say, you know, an asset minimum, but, but I, I do say, you know, it's just, I, I don't think our fee is, is our, our costs are going to be in your best interest, but this yeah. other advisor, I know his costs are more in line and his service is more in line with what you, what's going to be most appropriate for you. And you don't think you're going to make money on that person with $250,000. It's not that I'm not going to make money. Um, it's, 
a couple different factors. Um, it's, you know, I can only serve so many people. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about it in a little bit, but, but, and, and I have, believe me, uh, my minimum used to be $250,000, just not too long ago. Uh, so it's just, I know there's only so many people that I can do my best work with. If I have 500 clients, I, I not everybody is getting the same level of service. I mean, okay. there's just not enough time in the day, right? Fair enough. Brad, is he, is he crazy? Uh, no, no, Brad's not crazy. Absolutely not. I think the points that he's making are are valid on the on the subject. I think that's probably where our practices diverged in that those are all those are all valid concerns. But the way that I've uh, that that I've approached that is to develop a system that can accommodate it. Right. So using our and I and believe me, anybody that's listening, I mean, $250,000 is not even the type of client that I'm talking about. I'm talking about even much lower than that. When I when I developed this system, you know, even if we had a, a client that was half that right at a $125,000 client and people charge different things. But, you know, that's a thousand dollar a year plus revenue. Right. So what I found is with a, a lot of times those clients come with low assets, but also lesser servicing needs. And it's not to say that they're neglected. It's just that a lot of times, you know, someone with a couple hundred thousand dollars doesn't, the reality is they just don't have a complicated situation. They're not a lot of work. So it it becomes easier to delegate a lot of tasks related to that household, if that makes sense. You know, if we're, if we're bringing in $1,200 a year in revenue, I'm um, sure depending on your model and your broker dealer and whatnot, that's, you know, not all of that is is hitting your bank account, certainly. But the the variable cost in our industry, for the most part, is very low, right? The client acquisition is expensive. Um, there's some overhead. But once someone becomes, like once once you are hired for a job, our variable cost, I think, is extraordinarily low, right? We're not building houses where we have hundreds of thousands of dollars of materials. We're not... You know, we're not even cleaning houses where we need detergent and a mop, right? It's, it's mostly a an intellectual property that we're selling. So, my view has kind of been, you know, can I delegate enough tasks related to the lower servicing needs and maybe lower net worth client base that that makes it make sense financially for me to take them, and they can still have a good experience, and I'm not passing up on revenue that would otherwise be profitable. So Brad, Brad, how many, uh, how many clients do you have in your, in your business? If you can share that somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 700 households. Okay. Greg, where are you at? I'm at about 95 households. Wow. Okay. That, 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 that those are starkly different numbers. So I want to throw this out because I hear this is uh I hear this is a complaint from advisors when they're making this decision. Smaller households are pains. They're hard to deal with. They're needy. They call a lot. Uh, what, what, what's your feeling on that? Let's go to Greg first. Has that been your experience, or is is that a reason to have minimums, or is that just kind of a yeah, that's not really the truth? Yeah, it, it, it's a great conversation because you know, and, and don't get me wrong, it's not like I started out with you know where I am. I started out just like as Jim said, and uh, quite frankly, anybody you know, early on, my first five years, I was just trying to. Those first five years are a killer. You're trying to get as, as many clients as you can, but you know those those I, you know I call them PITA clients if you know what I mean, um, pain in the you know what, um, and a lot of those people are, and um, a lot of the they 
the smaller clients tend to be in my experience. Now, not all of them. I have some of them, you know, that I have worked with over the years that they've been a pleasure, as Brad mentioned, to work with. Um, I've even had, they, they kind of know they're kind of a, a smaller client um, and they kind of know, you know, we're not making much money on, on the service we're providing, right? So they kind of keep that in the back of their mind and they are respectful for your time. But man, they're, in my experience, there have been several uh, households that, man, they'll eat up as much time as they can. They, they have like this expectation that they deserve, they're entitled to this, you know, fantastic service. And it's like, you know, you have a, very small, uh, <laughs> you know, financial situation that just doesn't, um, yeah, their expectations are way too high. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, I think it's a good point. Um, the fact is in any financial practice is that, uh, larger clients, uh, subsidize the smaller ones. Like th- yeah. they, they, they just do. And it's mm-hmm. it, right or wrong. It's how it works. So when you, when you spend a bunch of time, it can feel like that. Now, Brad, you obviously have a lot of these smaller clients, a big book, but a lot of smaller clients. Are you? Do you experience the same thing? Are these? Are these people? Are these people hard to deal with? You know, I, I've given a lot of thought to this over the years, and I, I truly think that that what you experience there is, um, it's not that they're proportionately they're no more or less of a pain than than larger clients. I think for one, our tolerance for certain things becomes, we become more tolerant when someone is paying us a lot of money, but the truly, the truly pain in the, you know, what clients that, that Greg is talking about. And I don't know what percentage that is. I don't know if it's 5% or 10%, but it's somewhere in that range or less. You know, if you only, if, you know, if Greg has 95 clients and and five of them are, are really, or 5% are really unpleasant to deal with, and that gives you what, four or five, four or five that, you know, you cringe when you see their their number on the caller ID. Whereas if the percentage is still the same, but you have 600 clients and it's 5%, now I have 30, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So it feels like, oh my God, I'm taking these calls every week or every other week from these people that don't even pay me anything. And why am I doing this? It can, and I really do think that that's what it is. It isn't that magically when you get money, you become a more pleasant person. It's just that running a more voluminous practice, you experience it far more often. Um, and and by the way, talking about building a system to to deal or a process to deal with that, you know, it, the tolerance level is a little bit lower. But also, you know, you just have to commit to the idea that if I take on a client, if I make a mistake in assessing someone initially, that becomes problematic. I have a way of getting that out of my life and out of my practice. And that can apply for a large client too, right? Yeah. But and you can set those expectations if you want in your onboarding process when you have someone that beat, you know, is below your ideal minimum. Um, you know, the way that I approach it is I I lay out a different service model for them. And I'll just use, you know, not even a someone who intends to be a pain, but you know, if you have a 20-something clients that are just getting started, you know, maybe they needed some term insurance and start Roth IRAs and some some advice for their 401k. We know I'm, I'm not making any money on that. I don't, but I they could be they would be great clients later in my career that I'm almost getting paid a little bit to prospect. But if a client like that starts calling, you know, twice a month and off hours or you know. Um, just anything that's that's way, way, way inconvenient or out of the scope of what we should be doing for what they're paying, you know, 
then we can have a conversation about maybe we're not a good fit anymore. But I try to set that expectation for a client like that in the beginning and let them know, you know, we're not going to do quarterly meetings. And I don't need to be shy about saying why, you know, you can point out what you're charging them and say, you know, certainly if there's something very pressing and, you know, we need an extra meeting throughout the year, a phone call, we can schedule it. But for the most part, you know, we're going to do a half hour annual review. You can even say we're going to do it by Zoom or do it by phone and, you know, set the expectation from the start. So you have a process to not get bogged down by that. Yeah, I think you I I think you were uh, spot on on uh, a couple points there. Primarily, um, our tolerance for spending 30 minutes explaining a, a problem to somebody who's paying us $400 a year is is much lower as opposed to somebody who's paying us $4,000 a year. We're we're much more willing to talk to somebody with half a million dollars as opposed to 20,000. And then you're 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 spot on right. This is this is education I've had to give to my team is that the lower uh lower volume account or lower asset accounts, they're not paying PI PITAs in uh as to Greg's point proportionally more than our larger clients there just happens to be more of them so we hear you know we if you've got 200 of those and you have a hundred million dollar accounts you're just going to hear from you're going to hear from them they're probably percentage wise the same the other um the other the other thing that i hear and and i want to then i want to get into some good debating here on some of this stuff is that there's a compliance risk when you work with a large volume of accounts so, Brad, I'm going to throw it back over to you, and then, Greg, I want your feedback as well on this. But, but before before we go on to that, I want to add something on what you just said about the the half hour, which I know you're elaborating on what I said. Um, you know, if you if you have the right system in place for that, that that client that takes a half hour a year of your time, which it really, I mean, let's face it, if you're at that stage, it, it can take that long. Um, and let's say they have, you know, even fifty thousand dollars, and you're charging them one percent, right? That's $500 a year. And let's say your variable cost, what is our variable cost? Maybe some postage, maybe have some performance reporting software or something like that. I don't know. But, you know, at at uh, 500 bucks for a half an hour, let's say that even 400 of that is actual profit. You know, do the math on that. That's $800 an hour profit. If you could fill up 2,000 hours of full-time year at $800 an hour, is that bad business? No, incredibly profitable. No doubt about right. it. But the and you know the other part of that that I want to mention, and then I'll and I'll go back to the compliance thing. Um, you know, you in order to do that though, to not get bogged down, you do have to make a decision like Greg and I have to do that. You know, you can't you can't just take twelve of them, right? Because now it's all on you to handle, and twelve of those clients is not enough to acquire the overhead needed to service them and not bog you down. And I'm talking about support staff and things of that nature, you know? So it's almost like a fork in the road. You have to decide whether you're going to build, willing to invest to build to, to accommodate that or not. Yeah. Good point. So, so Brad, let's talk about compliance risks because um, I mean, the the fact is somebody with $2,000 represents as much compliance risk from a complaint perspective as somebody with 2 million. How do you justify, even though, even though you're doing that, how do you justify the risk associated with taking these smaller clients on it in mass? Well, I, I think, you know, two things I'll say. Number one, obviously, the 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 more clients you have, the more the, the more risk of a of a compliance issue in, in any business. The more business you do, the bigger target that you're going to be and the more chances you you have to, to have an issue. No doubt about that. Um, 
I don't know that the risk is the same for a $2,000 Roth IRA as for a $2 million uh, account, though, because, I mean, even if there were to be a mistake or a perceived mistake, mistake, I mean, the, the damages are are so much less. Um, but I think that to, to uh, you know, I've never had, I've never had a, you know, I've, I have no compliance issues and I've never had anything even, even close to one. Um, no guarantee, but I think you build that into the onboarding process and be, you know, if you're going to do something with, if you're going to work with smaller clients, you just have to be very diligent about who you take on, but you should probably be very diligent about that anyway, because, you know, a compliant, a complaint is a complaint, you know, and you wouldn't want it any more from a $2 million, $2 million client than you would from a you know $10 client. Yeah. But I think it's mostly in the process, but I do absolutely acknowledge, you know, I, I have a higher risk of, of having a problem than someone that only has 50 or hundred households for sure. Yeah. Greg, has that worked into your math or is this more just from uh when you made this decision to, um, uh, to, to run a, a smaller household size, but a higher account minimum size, was that a, was compliance part of the process or was this more of a, a lifestyle, uh, decision when you did that? I, I would say both, but, but, you know, a lot of things were going through my mind. Uh, wh- what I found was that the the lower I, I'm, and maybe it's just my personality. I, I like, I want to win. Like, so when I'm putting together a retirement plan, I want this thing to work out. And it always seemed like the bottom tier, maybe the CD clients, they were always the one like sabotaging my plan, right? I was doing everything I could. Maybe it was Roth conversions. We're, you know, term insurance, like I was, you know, investing it properly. Brad, we, we're in total agreement with how to invest. But then they would always call up and say, oh, I, I'm going to, take out an early distribution and just sabotage my retirement. And it was just, they would just blow up all the work that I had done. And it just ate me up. And what I found was, is that my my higher end clients, my my A's and my A pluses, rarely did they ever did that do that. They always kind of stuck with the plan. And I just enjoyed working with them because, you know, that's, I, I want a positive outcome at the end of the day. I want them to be able to retire and, and be happy. But the ones that are calling in, you know, the, you know, oh, I need to take out a $50,000 distribution. And it's like, well, your, your account's, you know, worth 75 here, you know, <laughs> leaves you 25,000. Are you really sure you want to forego your retirement success? Uh, so anyway, that was one thing, but also my compliance, you know, officer will tell you, Hey, uh, we want to see you doing the same work for someone with fifty thousand as someone with five million. They don't care about the balances. Compliance. They want to see: Are you checking all of the boxes? Are you providing the same service? Are you meeting with this person? And especially if you're, you know, fee-based advisory, a fiduciary now nowadays, and the reporting that we have to do, meeting with all clients on at least an annual basis, um, it was just so much more easier for me to think, okay. I need a repeatable process. And I know that's a overused beat to death term, but if I'm doing the same thing for every single client, you know, and of course there's going to be some, you know, extras that we do for some clients, but the process is the same. It's, it's a deliverable service that's repeatable and consistent. And it's just so much easier um, to, to deliver the disservice. You're, you're not kind of doing a little of this, doing a little of that. You're kind of just staying focused on what you're good at. Uh, and, and for, for us, that's retirement planning. Brad, I feel like Greg just called you out. 
<laughs> Why do you feel that way, Jim? No, I just I, I was hoping to have some. <laughs> you feel that here. way just because Greg can't handle the same situation that I did. I understand, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, no, no, I'm sorry, no below the belt shots. I forgot. Yeah. So so no, it's it's good. How do you? He has, see a, it? he has an excellent point, though, Jim. He has, an, he has an excellent point. Yeah. No, I think they are. I, look, there's. I think the important thing is there's no right or wrong, right? Like you've got to right. you've got to make your decision. And also, I think. I think there's some geography that goes into this as well. And um, depending upon where you live, you know, we've got, uh, he's going to listen to this, but we've got this friend, uh, we'll call him BC, that lives in like the Goldilocks era of the the country. I mean, people are moving in with million dollar rollovers. It like flies out of the sky and into his pocket. And and he's a good advisor, smart guy, does a great job, but uh, he'll be the first to admit that he's blessed by his, his location. And, Brad, I, you and I uh, were, were chatting a little bit. I think, I think it, you know, we just got a Starbucks in our area. I mean, yep. <laughs> I know that's like people are like, uh, uh, yeah, thanks, dude. We've had that for like ten years or twenty years. Like, we just got one. That's we're rural, and you're pretty rural too. Did, when you were building this out, does location did that play into your into your mind, or is this it was this more a market driven decision around how you're going to prospect? That's directed to me, Jim. Yes. I, you know, I, it wasn't something I did intentionally. I think it just happened because of, you know, being in a rural area. I think you just run, you have less, you have less higher net worth people around. So you end up in order to survive to year three or to year five, you just generally have to have to take more. Um, And that's what I did. I just, you know, I adapted my system over time to accommodate that because it was working for me, you know, and I think you, I think you can also go, you know, you can transition from one to the other if you want. I think that's important just in case anyone is earlier in their career. Um, you know, and I'm kind of doing that right now. I've just recently brought on a, a junior advisor and, you know, the plan is that, you know, I'm going to transition a lot of these uh, smaller clients over to him over time. And it, you know, it's like a, it's a win-win for everyone in that, you know, the clients are still getting quality service and advice backed by decades of experience um, you know, my junior, certainly I, I would have loved to have even small clients on my, in my CRM, my first year or two people to talk to, oh, yeah. uh, because oh, yeah. those people do refer. And I know that, I know that the common thought in our industry is small clients refer small clients and big clients refer big clients. And there's going to be some truth to that, but I can point to absolutely 10, seven figure households in my book that came from sub six figure or low six figure referrals it it does happen and if you think about yourself if you think about yourself you you probably have friends that are substantially beneath you economically and substantially above you economically sure most of your friends are probably a lot like you haha like you but we all have connections family whatever that is that are at other ends of the spectrum and i have seen some of that where a an almost no profit client re- refers a monster to me. It, it absolutely. So, um, but yeah, I think there's ways to deal with it as you progress throughout your career. I mean, you can also, you know, refer them to somebody, another firm, you can send them to a call center. You can institute a minimum advisory fee to make their asset level irrelevant. You know, there's right. lots of ways that you can transition. If you want to, you can bring on a junior and let them handle them. Um, there's any number of ways that you can, that you can handle it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna build a volume business, which I, I'm kind of a hybrid, where I I'm I'm sort of I'm, I'm a little ahead of where Brad was on that transition, where 
I brought on a junior because uh, I just have too many smaller households. But if you're going to continue to add households at some point, you will hit a capacity issue. There, there sure. is no matter how many assistants you have, you only have so many hours in a day where you personally can do this or you want to. I mean, you know, after you get a hundred million dollars under management, I, you're probably not going to be wanting to grind 40, 50, 60 hours any longer. So scaling will really be important in that model if you want to continue to grow, which, you know, Brad doesn't, I don't think he needs, he needs to continue to grow. He runs a successful practice. He can probably coast for the next 15 or 20 years should he want to. But uh, sometimes you have that fire in your belly where you want to keep going. Greg, for you, from, from a business perspective, do you, do you feel like, um, or do you want to scale? Is that, is that important to you? Or is it, is it, is it kind of, you just want to, you just want to kind of do, you know, fly your own flag. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to get to the point where, yeah, I, I'm probably going to bring on a junior advisor um, and, you know, transition some some households. Um, and now, the one thing that's important is I, I still do have, you know, a number, I don't know, a couple dozen maybe of, of the, the 95 households are, are what would be considered lower net worth clients, right? That I could transfer over um, or transition to this, um, this advisor, but yeah, if, if I keep up at the same pace that I'm, you know, as far as the marketing and the prospecting at, at some point, I'm, I'm probably going to need a, a junior advisor. I just don't know when that is. Uh, we've, we've had a discussion about that on this podcast of how hard it is to find somebody that's a good junior advisor. I mean, it's a challenge. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, that, that uh, if, if anybody has never read this book, it's called The Supernova Advisor. It's by Rob Knapp. Have you guys read this? No, forever ago. This was yeah. uh, like Edward Jones way back in the day was like pimping this book pretty hard as, uh, as an idea of what they call the good night program. I don't even know if they still do it, but yeah, it's it's really good. Yeah. Really so good. basically is this, this Rob Knapp guy started this supernova at Merrill Lynch. And essentially what he found was, you know, reviewing all these different advisors. And this may have been back in the nineties. So this has been, it's been a while ago, like Jim said, but he found there's this Pareto principle, the 80, 20 rule that he looked across all these books of businesses and essentially 20, 80, 20. So 20% of the clients were responsible for 80% of the business. And there were a couple like top tier advisors that he identified to kind of be examples in this study. And one guy in the book, he had 631 accounts. 131 of those were inactive. This is a Merrill Lynch advisor. So inactive, meaning it was basically like a money market checking account. You're not making any money on those 131 accounts. So what he recommended to the guy, he said, look, if you drop, uh, if you drop 83% of your clients your revenues will only go down by 9%. Wow. And the guy was like blown away. So he ended up keeping, he had like, you know, the criteria that they had to meet this, this, this. He ended up keeping 33 households and they were responsible for 91% of his business. And his assistant was there and said, you know, look at all these households and we only make 9% of our revenues. Do you know all the administrative time and what a pain in the, you know, what these people are and, you know, all, all of our devotion we have. And so basically what he came up with with was uh, if we have regular scheduled 
contact with these 33 households. We're going to get more referrals. We're going to have better service, more loyal clients. And that's exactly what happened is referrals increase the next year. And those, I am shocked when I, when you, you're in, when an A client does not refer another A client, I, I'm always pretty shocked. I would say it's like 80 or 90% of the time an A client is referring another A client. So um, anyway, check out that book, guys, uh, The Supernova Advisor by Rob Knapp. It's uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, Jerry Maguire said, what did, what did he say? He, he wrote uh, the book. Uh, he said the answer to, he was a agent, a sports agent. If everybody remembers that movie, he, and uh, his mentor said that the answer to this business is personal relationships. And he thought about it and he ended up like writing a big book uh, on it. And he, he came up with fewer clients, more attention, more caring for them and more caring for ourselves. And that's uh, that was the Jerry Maguire story. Yeah. And Greg, I, I, I completely believe those numbers and, and my book uh, looks the same. I think the difference in our, I think that we're honestly saying the same thing in the end. I mean, obviously at this stage of my career, I mean, I, I don't want to be wasting even a half hour of my life talking about $200 a month Roth IRA for sure. But I think that the way that I've adapted over time was that it recognizes that that's not really a good use of my time and it's not terribly, not that it's not profitable, but um and coming up with a way to make it profitable, right? Because if we lose that old, that other example of, you know, that even thousand dollar a year client, by the way, I think that's insane of our industry. You know, if you went over to the accounting, bookkeeping, tax prep, insurance, man, even maybe a lot of attorneys, you know, an ongoing thousand dollar a year guaranteed revenue client that pays you year after year after year and grows as the stock market goes up. Man, in most industries, that is a that is a good client, and to us, we scoff at it, and I think it's a little crazy. But you know, we there, and we do it because we know there's opportunity for bigger. But you know, in in our example of this hundred and twenty five thousand dollar client that's netting us a thousand dollars a year or eight hundred dollars a year after a grid and costs, even you know what if I bring that if I if I delegate that to my junior once he's up and running, right? What will I have to de- What will what will my time commitment be to that client? maybe five minute conversation with my junior if he needs some help. So I'm going to get $400 a year for five minutes of time, multiply that through an hourly rate. And now my, now my $800 an hour is almost $5,000 an hour. I already did the work of putting them in front of me, right? I already did all it's already invested. Is there a way I can develop a system to make that profitable for me and someone else and give someone else good service? Yeah. You know, I, I just think there's a difference in system. And you can do that also by turning bad clients into good clients. And it could be as simple as saying, hey, I charge 1% or whatever you charge, subject to a minimum of blank per quarter. And in the end, you're only going to get the good clients to take it seriously that just don't have a lot of money, right? Because if someone is willing to pay you whatever it is, $250 a quarter, $500 a quarter, whatever you decide, you know they're serious. And now they're making it worth your time to help you. So I think it's about coming up with a system to accommodate the volume if that's what you choose, or if you would prefer to, you know, have lower overhead and and more, you know, less uh, complexity, then, you know, you develop a system where you, you institute a minimum or, you know, and only take certain people. But I think that's all. I think we're saying the same thing. I do too. Uh, Now, one thing you mentioned, and, and just, it just reminded me of my past. 
So I can't tell you when I was in my first couple of years in this business, I cannot tell you how many people that I got as a new client because either A, uh, you know, like they had went to a Merrill Lynch and the minimum was $250,000. And they said, they would ask me up front, hey, if your minimum is $250,000, I don't have it. And it's like, well, you're in luck, baby. Come on in. <laughs> so, so building that first 10, 20 million of assets, I mean, that first five years, I mean, you you both remember what a grind it was. I mean, that was my bread and butter back then. You know, the person was 75,000, 150,000. I can't tell you how many clients I had from, um, uh, and I'll just point it out, Edward Jones, where the person would say, I am just so fed up with being tossed around. Uh, I'm getting, I'm, I have a new advisor every week, it sounds like. And then they call, introduce themselves, and I just get passed down the line, passed down the line. And these people may have 75,000, 100,000, 150,000. Maybe they were in A shares or something like that. Um, and then they, they would say, hey, by the way, I'm changing jobs. And and I'll I'll be darned if I'm gonna you know roll over this old 401k to Edward Jones because I'll have a new advisor next week. And so I'd say, okay, well come on in. I'm gonna be here. You know this and that. I those two. Um, so yeah, for the the younger advisors out there, I mean, yeah, I, I mean I'm with Brad. A thousand dollars a year at that point in time, those first five years. Uh, I mean, those were fantastic clients. And what happens is is the younger advisors will will figure out. Those accounts will grow over time if you're investing them the way they should. So a $100,000 account today, in 10 years, what's that going to be? $200,000, $300,000, you know, with market growth, with, uh, you know, Roth IRA contributions, those kinds of things. So those clients will grow with you. So don't don't forget that. Yeah, I think it's important to know that, you know... It- Edward Jones at least services these people right now. I mean, if you went to uh, if you went to some of the other wires that are out there, the advisors don't even get paid on them. So mm-hmm. th- these these clients, whether it's at at, at uh, the green machine or the blue machine or the red machine or what I, I don't know what UBS's color is, but any of these companies out there, you know, the lot of them. <laughs> yeah, green. They like green. Um, yeah, a lot of them. They, they've instituted these asset minimums uh, and. You know, the, the advisors, at least as far as I know, I can be completely wrong and uh, they, they, you guys connect connect with me if I am and I'm happy to update this in the show notes, but a lot of them don't pay their advisors unless they hit a certain number. The other thing I think is important, and I think you guys are both saying the same thing, but I think it's worth pointing out there's there, not all $50,000 accounts are created equal. There is a big difference between Joe and Sally who are 65 and they've got 50 grand to their name. And then, and then, you know, Susie and Roger who are 45 and have a $50,000 rollover, but they're making 150 grand a year. And, and, and I think when you're, you know, as you begin to transition, maybe to, maybe to Greg's model, if you've, you know, you've started, you've got to really weigh that and understand that you don't really want the older couple necessarily because that's all they're ever going to have. They're probably better at a bank or something that's safe and they might end up taking a lot of your time because they, they, they're, they're just, they've not been good savers or circumstances, but that younger couple who has a, a big chunk or a small chunk of money, but can save, that could be a really good profitable client for you in the future that can really help out. And I think no matter what, and I know you both do this, but no matter what, if you agree to take somebody on as a client, you know, it, it's, it's really important you deliver good, solid financial planning and service to them, that they're not just a number because uh, they'll feel it 
And in this weird world where people can leave digital reviews, if you don't treat people with respect and dignity, you might find your Google rating get turned upside down really quickly. So you got to be careful there. So guys, um, I, I think you, you've you've presented a pretty a pretty good way to do it. Let's. I want to go back though, Brad. If you go back in time, would would you have done anything different? Would you have instituted uh, a minimum or excluded some folks, or would you run it exactly the same as where you're at today? Well, first, I want to say that in your hypothetical example just now with Susie and Roger and whoever the other couple was, yeah. I'm not sure what happened to Greg's friend, Karen, but I think she should have been included in the conversation. <laughs> I just want to get that out there right now. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I probably would have, if I could go back and do it over again, I really have only... I haven't fired that many clients in my career, which is surprising given the number of households that I have. So I've done a pretty good job of screening people. I guess the two or three that I really loathed that I didn't screen out in the beginning, I would go back and Monday morning quarterback them away. But as far as the overall process, I think the only thing that I would change, obviously, besides putting my personal sale on my business card, uh, <laughs> I think I would have brought a either brought a junior on earlier to to start this transition and free up some of my time to to be further upstream i would have done that earlier or i would have instituted a some type of minimum um minimum fee one of those two things because i did spend quite a bit of years doing this all on my own even with less support staff and i know that that did exactly what greg is trying to avoid spending half of my week doing things that are really, you know, I don't know what the hourly rate is, but much less than it could be. Yeah. So I would have done that. I would have recognized that and developed the system and implemented it earlier if I if I could go back. Yeah, perfect. Great. When, when you look at where your practice is today, if you had to look back in time about this asset minimum, would you have instituted it earlier or do you think you executed it at exactly the right juncture? It's a it's a fantastic question because uh, I've thought about this a lot. I have increased it steadily uh, over time, right? I mean, so so if anything, I, I didn't institute it soon enough. And of course, I make exceptions still this day. You know, if I really really like the person, of course, I'm going to make an exception to my asset minimum. You know, so um, the, the and Brad Brad brought up a, a bunch of key points. The the problem is. You know, when I starting when I was starting out earlier, I didn't have you know the team behind me that I have today. So right, because you're just starting out, you're kind of a solo advisor, kind of that that. So it is, so it is harder to kind of you know put that process in place. But if I could go back, I would I would have I would have set set aside my needs for income and given some people some passes. So in other words, you know, so if in the introduction meeting with a prospect, if my gut was telling me, hey, this Greg, this person's going to be a big pain in the ass, uh, you know, I probably should have stuck with that and not said, you know, hey, Greg, this guy's got $300,000 at 1%. That's a $3,000 a year, you know, uh, revenue stream, right? Uh, I made some exceptions for people, uh, but my gut was telling me, hey, uh, give them a pass. You need the money. And if I, if I just, if I could go back, I would, <laughs> because if I just didn't have to, you know, this business is stressful enough, it, but it's, it's because of the clients that cause us to be stressful. There's other ones that are like a absolute joy to work with. Um, so yeah. And if anything, maybe I probably would have fired, like Brad said, fired some uh, clients quicker. Yeah. Makes sense. 
I think it's important. Go ahead, go ahead, Brad. I was just going to say, Greg, and I think, you know, it's important to recognize not just for you and I, but for anybody else, what we're doing here, we're Monday morning quarterbacking, right? At the time we're talking about that, I, I know I made those mistakes and that you did as well. We didn't have a crystal ball. We didn't even know if we'd still be in the industry down the road to get rid of those clients. So, so anybody listening, don't beat yourself up about this. You know, it's rule number one is survive, right? And if you made a cup, make a hit a couple of bumps in the road along the way that you'd go back and do over, that's okay. Yeah, yeah I, that that's a very, very important point. Brad and I started off independent. So we didn't have any sales quotas or production quotas or any of that kind of stuff. So I can see, I mean, if you've got that, hanging over your head, it's going to be a totally different mindset, but, yeah. uh, but, but yeah, yeah, of course we can't go back, but you know, hindsight's 2020, right? Yeah. But it's fun to look back because there's, there are people out there that are listening that are in this spot where they're, they're two, three, four, five years in, and they're having to make these tough decisions on like, what does their future business look like? And, um, and it's hard. It's really hard. If I had to go back in time, uh, for me, I would probably the the older couple that was sort of they'd only managed to squirrel away, uh, you know, low low six figures or you know even less than that. I probably would push them more towards a, a banking relationship because they, they had not made good financial decisions in the uh, in the past, and and that's that's not because I didn't want to work with them and they wouldn't wouldn't be profitable. It's just that they're probably not right to be in the market per se. They're more savers than investors. Um, here's how I like to finish it up, guys. I want to, I, I'm going to throw it over to you guys for final thoughts. You can try to convince people out there that your way is the right way. And I don't think either of you will do that per se, or just kind of lay out why, uh, why you think it's there, why you, why you think that, um, why you think people should really take a hard look at it. And I, and I think it's important for folks to know, like we, we, we're, we all are kind of in the middle on this. Greg's kind of, in fact, in our group, he's kind of the outlier here, which is fantastic yeah, which right. is not by the way i think i think jeff brad and myself are more the outliers industry-wide because i i really feel like most of the industry it goes to this this low low household number high minimum number which is fantastic for lifestyle and loving on your clients but i'll greg i'll, I'll kind of kick it over to you first what are what are your last thoughts around this this question and uh and let's hear it yeah so the number one reason why people leave their advisor is lack of communication. I used to think it was performance or, you know, whatever. So it's lack of communication. There's a ton of different studies you can look back on that. So I know, I know that uh, if I can keep my, you know, my client number, my, my client households to a reasonable amount, and, and my goal is 150, right? So I got 95 now. So I, I've still got some capacity there. But if I had 3,000 clients, I know my client communication would not be anywhere like it is with 95 households. I mean, it's just plain common sense. I'd have to have a huge team behind me, and there's only so many Gregs, right? And clients, they, yeah, I have a DBA with my business, but and, and I have a big broker-dealer behind me. But but they're my clients. They they call and they they meet with Greg. I'm their advisor, right? So if I had 3,000 clients, they would really be customers or accounts. And I don't want people to feel like they're just another number. Uh, and I, I hate that. I But uh, I just had a phone call today with, with a, a service vendor of mine. And the, the guy like knew my name. And, and 
he's like, oh, how you been doing? He was asking me about my truck and things like that. It's like, wow, this guy really. So, so that's kind of the experience that I want my clients to have. Uh, and it just kind of like when you, you, you know, you walk into the barber and everybody knows your name kind of thing. Um, and, and I know in this world, that's, it's kind of like a small town fable, but, uh, but anyway, it, you know, if you have a big enough team behind you, yeah, you can have a sizable, you know, household number, but, but you need a big team. Yeah. Yeah. That, it, well stated. And, and that stuff matters. People, people knowing you matters, people feeling welcomed and heard matters. And, um, yeah, your vendor has uh, a really good CRM. If he's remembering your truck, yeah. uh, that that's a good lesson for all of us that, that are listening. If you if you if you capture client data, it's hard to remember it. But if you capture it and put it in your CRM and then bring it back up, boy oh boy, that wins brownie points in a big way. I mean, some guy asking about your truck, you're like, dude, I haven't talked to you for six months. I can't believe you remembered. He didn't. Yeah. He right. put it in a CRM. It's awesome. What a, what a, what a pro. That's awesome. Right. And us advisors put, you know, put kids' names, grandkids' names, be sure to ask about your, their pets, their dogs, their cats, that kind of thing. That's what they care about. Right. No, no doubt. That's great. How about you, Brad? You know, you, you stole my comments, Jim. Sorry. And I, I thought when Greg said it, you know, and this was not scripted at all. I mean, he summed it up with the, with the vendor example and the, and the barber example, right? The vendor didn't remember any of that. Doesn't remember your truck. Is <laughs> CRM did though, and that company has a system in place to accommodate the volume that they have and still give you the personal experience that you know that made you say that. Whereas the barber, right? He didn't open a master cuts or super cuts or whatever and employ you know twenty other people right out of beauty school. He keeps his client base small to people that he likes that pay him well and does it that way. And I think that that's the point. Maybe this is probably something that we should, we should put a note in for a, for a future century club. Um, you know, this all boils down to practice management and recognizing that it does coming up with a system to accommodate the business model that you want and getting it done because they both can be the barber and the, whatever vendor that was, or can both be successful, wildly successful and deliver the experience that their customers expect. Yeah, it, guys, this was this was really good. I thought I thought we'd have a little bit more low blows, and I was hoping for that as a uh, as somebody that likes to watch car 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 racing and accidents. But um, but it was great. And I appreciate you uh, arguing your points. I think there's a lot of common ground between these two models, a, a ton. Um, and and look, if you want to continue the conversation, we want to invite you out to our Facebook group. In fact, while we've been sitting here, we've had uh, two people uh, request to join the, the group and uh, be one of them. Well, you get a chance to to pick our brains, but also there's just a, a fabulous group of people that are that are growing their businesses, wanting to learn, sharing ideas, uh, sharing deliverables, and really want to encourage you if you uh, if you want to be part of that, just jump out either Facebook and go right over there in your search field and just type in uh, the Financial Advisors Edge. Make sure you're selecting groups and it'll just pull it up. You'll see it and join it and uh, join us. Or you can always go out to the faedge.com and and, uh, and join there. I'm going to declare this a split decision, by the way. Um, I think you guys both uh, argue your points valiantly. I think you did a great job. I appreciate you being uh, candid and sharing it. And uh, I know our, our listeners appreciate it as well. Hey, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week on the Financial Advisors Edge podcast. 
Thanks for listening to the show. Check us out at thefinancialadvisorsedge.com if you want to learn more about us. If you enjoyed the content, make sure to leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us. The opinions that are expressed in the shows are that of each host only and don't necessarily reflect the opinion of the other hosts. Like the weather, our opinions can change. This podcast isn't intended to provide tax, legal, or investment advice. Always consult with a qualified professional. We cannot guarantee our opinions or forecasts are right. See you next week.